You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. This conversation was brought to you by Lilo, the leading luxury sex toy brand who pride themselves in combining pleasure, quality and innovative design to help you to boost your sexual well-being. Lilo have won 36 major international design and industry awards, and I'm very proud to say that I work with them as their UK sex expert. So today we're talking about different ways of being in relationships and what it's like to open up or change your relationship model. Frankie joined me for this conversation to talk about some of the misconceptions or common misunderstandings surrounding polyamory and consensual non-monogamy, and breaking away from feeling that you have to subscribe to a relationship style that doesn't work for you. Um, Frankie, I know that one of the things you also wanted to mention, that although you're in a polyamorous relationship, that you're not a voice or a spokesperson for the community, and that you are just a person figuring it all out. Um, And I, I love that you said that, because I feel, you know, my perspective at least is that that's what we're all doing in our relationships all the time anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we 100% are, but I do think sometimes um, there's a bit of a temptation when you're invited to be on a podcast or speak on a panel or something that you kind of get expertified. Um, mm. Yeah, so I always want to be very clear that I'm definitely not an expert. I'm just somebody with some experience and some thoughts. <laughs> And you're also a journalist, so you write about love, sex, yes. relationships. Yeah, I do. So I specialise in writing about sex and relationships, which is probably why I spend so much time thinking and talking about this stuff as well. But So you're coming to it from both a kind of professional and a personal perspective. Yes, I have written about polyamory. Um, it's a tricky one because often when people want you to write about it, they do want you to write about your own experience well I'm usually pretty happy to talk about that um I don't know you have to draw the line somewhere don't you between your personal and your professional life so um there are there are definitely areas that I wouldn't want to write about but I'm generally pretty happy talking about it broadly and about my experience of it um maybe the details of it I would prefer to keep private you know (laughs) yeah no of course and I guess what we understand with any relationship and any discussion of any relationships and any kind of um, talk about sex lives is the thing is, is is there's never a one size fits all approach to anything. And I think that so often these are the conversations I'm having with people and I always tell people to think critically about what they're reading or about what they're hearing or because so often we can think, is that what everyone else is doing? Or why don't I fit that? Or why doesn't that apply to me? Or why isn't that representative? And I think that so often this is where we we trip up and we get stuck because we had this idea that we aren't on the same path as everybody else. But actually what we're understanding and by normalising these conversations is that there isn't one path for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And I think, well, two things. The first thing is, um, so I wrote a feature recently and as part of the brief, the editor had asked me to talk about um, monogamy and she'd thrown in a question saying... Um, can you give a tip for anyone who's thinking about opening up their relationship? And I was thinking, what, 
one tip like you want me to summarize it in one tip and I think that that's definitely one of the challenges of journalism a lot of the time is that you that they want you to be quite succinct and um you know be able to kind of like bash out these kind of advice um bullet points and I was thinking I mean you could write uh, not only could you write a whole feature about opening up a relationship you could write a whole book about it I mean people have there are numerous books so I was thinking this is not something that you can sum up in one piece of advice. And actually, in the end, what I ended up doing was just signposting to some other resources to get people started because, you know, there's absolutely no way I can answer that. Um, but then the other thing you just made me think of is um, I was uh, listening to the first episode of um, the new series of Esther Perel's podcast, uh, which is about polyamory. And one of the things she pointed out to the couple in question was that in opening up their relationship, they needed to be careful that they weren't going from one set of rules provided by monogamy to another set of rules provided by polyamory. And Mm. that definitely, that chimes with my experience so much because I think, especially when people ask you to talk about it, um, I always want to be really clear that the way I'm doing it is not necessarily the way that's going to work for somebody else. The whole Mm. point is that we're trying to unpick the idea of there being rules, like you say, and figure out what kind of relationship actually works for us. So I suppose that's something that I would uh, urge people to be mindful of when they're listening to people talk about, in inverted commas, how to do polyamory. Mm. And, you know, there is no how to do rule book for anything <laughs> and well, I think quite. <laughs> yeah so but I think it is useful because I think so often if people are thinking about changing their relationship model or trying out a new way of being in relationships the the way to start that journey is reading about other people's experience or kind of yeah. reading books or guides and so it's so easy to not think outside the box or to think okay well that worked for that person so that will also work for us and actually yeah it's all about make you know, kind of working out what fits you, what works for you. Definitely, and I think because one of the first books that people direct you to, um, if you express an interest in um, ethical non-monogamy of any sort, is um, the Ethical Slut, which I'm yeah. sure you're aware of. <laughs> and you were going to say that, yeah, 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 which is Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. And I read that, and um, I'm not sure if this um this is this might be like polyamory blasphemy, but I kind of hated it. <laughs> um. I just didn't connect with it. Like there are lots of really good ideas in there, but I didn't connect with it. I didn't connect with the way that they were talking about doing their relationships. And I had to go and read a lot of other accounts and hear a lot of other stories about how people were doing things before I started to see a path that that might be appealing to me, if that makes sense. Mm. And I think, you know, it's amazing that we live in a time when people are writing these books and having these conversations and kind of the information is out there because it's something that has never been kind of as openly discussed historically. Yeah, yeah. And I think the starting point for me was actually reading more sort of anthropological stuff, um, which talks about, you know, which delves into whether or not we could even consider monogamy to be natural in inverted commas or whether it's the product of, you know, kind of... um, socio-political structures um and reading those were kind of helpful more helpful in a way because it just helped me make sense of what I was feeling as opposed to Mm. as opposed to trying to figure out what to do I just wanted to know that what I felt was legitimate Mm. um so yeah and there's there's a lot of fantastic books I sometimes think like 
half of the time when I come and talk about polyamory, I'm basically just, it's a book, it's a reading list. It's a list of book recommendations for people. <laughs> that, that is not a bad thing, though. That is not a bad <laughs> thing at all. <laughs> you should see my bookshop. I have probably 30 unread books and an Amazon wish list of about Oh my God, 3, same, same. It's out so of control. Much same. I don't know when I'm ever, I mean, I'm going to have to retire aged 40 to read them all in my lifetime. I sort of um, think I should have a reading week, like... Um, at uh, university because I, I studied English literature and you used to get a weaker term when you were just supposed to do all the reading and I feel like I need to incorporate that into my professional life now because there's so much reading. <laughs> That's my idea of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said you said you were kind of trying to make sense of what you were feeling. Do you know, like, if you could describe that now, do you even know what that feeling was when you were starting to think about kind of changing your relationship model? I think... Um... I think what's interesting is that I definitely was starting to feel like I didn't believe long-term sexual monogamy was possible even before I met my now husband. Um, And Rob and I met um, 11 years ago now. Um, So even before that, I was starting to think that that I couldn't really imagine myself wanting to have sex with the same person for like 10, 20 years. Mm. Um, But then I met Rob and obviously you know going into a new relationship was very exciting and you know we had a lot of um kind of new relationship energy that carried us through the first few years and the idea of sleeping with somebody else was was just genuinely not even on, on my mind um because exploring what we had together was so exciting and um just taking up a lot of my attention and energy i guess um but then we always did have conversations about relationships and sex and, you know, that was that was one of the things that we connected on was the fact that we both had really open-minded attitudes and were very up for discussing sex and relationships. Mm. Um, and it's hard, to, it's hard to kind of track it back now because it does feel like quite a long time, but we just had conversations over and over again about the future, kind of what like hypothetically how we saw uh relationships panning out and um just over a course of years we sort of agreed that probably sexual variety would be would be a positive thing even for us if we stayed together as a couple mm. um but then it, it i can't the feelings involved in that were it's not to say that I felt suffocated at the time because I didn't, but I I did have this very clear sense that I would. Mm. Um, that, and I suppose it sounds like you guys were future-proofing in a way and you, there wasn't this kind of <sighs> sit-down, huge conversation, more that it was always a part of the conversation. Yeah. So it was less of a... Yeah, less definitely. Less of a kind of, um, like, you know, huge moment, more of a this is not not something we're uncomfortable discussing or talking about sex and relationships openly or exploratively it is something that comes naturally to us as a couple yeah i th- i think so and obviously um yeah so there was no kind of big bombshell moment which is definitely something i've heard about happening with other couples um mm. but I I can definitely relate to how that might happen. You know, if I'd kept quiet about my misgivings, if I'd not sort of broached those conversations early on in a hypothetical, like, you know, 
kind of speaking academically, do we believe that long-term monogamy is 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 feasible? Um, then I can see how it might get to a head at some point, and you would have to have a kind of big discussion that would be quite potentially quite painful. Um, but yeah, we did always have those conversations, and I think also because I was in my work, I was getting more into sex and relationships and so I was reading things and I was um you know hearing lots of different stories I was being exposed to ideas that way which I would then discuss with my husband well boyfriend at the time you know in a way that you discuss your work right Mm. so in the same way that he'd come home from his job and sort of say oh I've been writing this business story today about xyz and this company blah 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 tell me the ins and outs I might tell him about something I'd been researching or someone I'd been talking to and then that would spark an interesting discussion so in a way Mm. that was a bit of a cheat way into being a couple who talks openly about sex relationships because we were going to talk about it anyway because it was part of my work um yeah but yeah I think that yeah, I didn't know the term future-proofing back then, but I definitely, we definitely had this sense of talk, discussing what we felt was sustainable in a long-term relationship. Mm. And I suppose curiosity, I would argue, is one of the key factors of any sex life, whatever relationship model you're using, and it sounds like it's something that you guys have always had. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's really true. That is definitely something that we've both always had. And also, we are both journalists, so I think curiosity is definitely a big part (laughs) of both of our personalities so I think that did definitely reflect in our sex life and probably was a a factor Mm. and kind of um when we're talking about these relationship models there's lots of terms that people use so polyamory being one or ethical or responsible non-monogamy yeah um and the the key point being that there is informed consent from all parties which is what makes it different to people having relationships that are inverted commas kind of extramarital or affairs or infidelity you know they are a completely different structure but I think quite often people assume or make assumptions based on not having a lot of information that there isn't that much distance between those things and I think that was something I wanted to to pick up on as well oh yeah god totally I mean Yes, that, you know, people refer to it as ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. And those, the the word ethical and the word consensual are really the key part of that. Mm. Um, And I've definitely had that, you know, I've been on dating apps and kind of matched with guys who've been like, you know, interested in chatting. And sometimes looking at somebody's profile, you can maybe just get a sense, like a lot of people who are practicing consensual monogamy, they have it up front and centre on their dating profile because that's the whole point, right? It's it's informed consent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when people don't, I always tend to ask a few questions like, hey, so tell me a bit about you. Like, what's your relationship set up? Kind of, you know, do you have a partner? What's going on? And pretty quickly I would kind of learn, and this happened to me like multiple times not loads of times but certainly more than a couple um and Mm. always men I have to say um where they'd sort of go oh yeah 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 ethical non-monogamy yep uh tick I'd be like okay cool so tell me (laughs) like what like what's your relationship so they'll be like well I'm married I'm like all right cool cool so and you know do you have any other partners does your wife have any other partners no, 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 just, I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of interested to see what's out there. And just through, you'd get a bit of a sense, you know, you get a vibe. And mm. I'd be like, does your wife know you are on dating apps? And they kind of be like, 
Um, I mean, well, it's something we haven't discussed yet, but I'm planning to talk about it with her. And I would just be like, okay, bye. This is not... You're like, that's not ethical, non-monogamy. This is not what this is. And yeah, exactly. Mm. And I even had one guy say to me, look, at least I'm being honest with you about it. And I'm like, you're being honest with me, a person you've never met on the internet, but you're not being honest with your own wife or your own girlfriend. Like, dude, that's... That's not how honesty works. That's not how any of this works. And I think it's really important that we clear up those misconceptions, isn't it? Because I think from outsiders' perspectives, people just think, oh, it's just multiple relationships. But it isn't. And I think anyone who knows anything about polyamory or multi-partner relationships or responsible non-monogamy knows that there are rules and agreements, that there is planning, that there is amazing communication I think quite often the communication the consent the those aspects of those relationships could teach everybody quite a lot about relationships but yeah and it's hard work as well Mm. like um I think that's that so the the reason that those situations would annoy me so much is partly because they sort of think why like it's insulting that you think that I as somebody who's trying to do this ethical thing would want to be involved with somebody who's being dishonest who's not Mm. being ethical and furthermore I think I've worked really hard to get to this point like you don't just get to swan in here um and you know take a piece of it if you're not prepared to do the work in your own relationship yeah and it does take a lot of work right and it takes a lot of communication and a lot of clarity and I think um one of the things you and I were saying before when we were talking is this idea that everyone wants to know like oh doesn't everyone get jealous or isn't it all just really complicated and that you go into these agreements with a lot of that groundwork already done, with a lot of the communication already there, with a lot of the discussions already had. It's not just let's give it a go on a whim and see what happens. Yeah, and the discussions don't end as well. That's the point. Um, I mean, it's a bit like what we were saying about how how kind of Rob and I got to this point in the first place is that it wasn't one big sit-down discussion and then off we went. It was, It was like hundreds of small discussions over years and... And that continues, you know, Rob and I don't just stop talking about how we're doing our relationship now. Um, We've got to keep talking about it because, you know, what we want and what we need may well, I mean, almost certainly will change as as we get older. Um, And, you know, if our family expands and as our careers change and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But then the other thing I'd also say is that monogamy is a lot of work as well. Mm. Um, And I think people don't, don't think about it in the same way somehow. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because for a lot of people, monogamy isn't really kind of seen as a conscious choice. It's just what you do. It's just that's what you think, like that's what a relationship looks like to most people. If they imagine getting to a relationship, they imagine it being monogamous. So it doesn't occur to people that that might require any analysis or reflection because you're like well that's what a relationship is so as long as I'm doing that I'm doing it right um Mm -hmm. I mean I do know and I think that a lot of people once they've been in a monogamous relationship for a little while um over the long term they start to realize that it's not quite as simple as that and issues do come up and you know it's 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 a lot of work to keep to to partner with somebody over the long term whether you're doing that monogamously or not um, I think mm. the only thing that maybe polyamorous people have uh, as, a, as a benefit is that we're aware of that. So we maybe start doing it sooner. 
Mm. So those conversations are there from, you know, minute one. And I think one of the things that I say to people as a psychosexual relationship couples therapist all the time is relationships take work. You know, the representations that we see of relationships in the media and in TV shows and in films, you know, as much as we know they're not realistic representations, we do all kind of still cling on to the fact that we hope our relationship will just work and that things will just happen and we are the perfect fit. And no, I I don't believe that any couple can be the perfect fit without working at it, at least yeah. at some points in their relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, I think it's, I mean, I've, I've felt both of those things. Like, there've definitely been times with Rob where I felt like I really can't imagine having met somebody who was kind of a better person for me to do this life with, you know, to partner with, to co-parent with. Um, but that hasn't happened by accident. Yes, we're a really good match. We've got lots in common. We've got similar sets of humour. You know, we like the same music, all of that kind of stuff that, that matters when you're first getting into a relationship with somebody. But we've also worked really hard to be good partners to each other. So, yeah. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think one thing I'm a bit reluctant about is that talking about polyamory sometimes just sounds extremely rational and like there's no romance to it. Um, but I I feel incredibly starry-eyed about Rob and, and, you know, other partners as well. And I definitely go through those moments of being like, oh my God, this person's so amazing. Like the universe has brought us together and, you know, all of that fun stuff as well. Um, mm. But I suppose it's just trying, I'm trying to stay a bit aware as well and keep my feet on the ground but there are lots of um theories that suggest there are seven different types of love right and i suppose that why can't i was just talking about this on twitter today (laughs) (laughs) and why you know why can't we share the love so the the thing that i come back to every time is this like informed consent um part of these relationships but all of us have different relationships in our lives all the time we have relationships with friends with colleagues with family with our children with our parents with with different kind of partners and I suppose it's just about reframing these ideas and perhaps for people who are open to exploring these relationship models that it's thinking okay well there isn't just one way of doing it and there never has been it's just that all of the focus has always been on kind of coupledom so to speak and I suppose that what you were saying about it kind of not being a conscious choice for a lot of people, it's just the done thing. I imagine there are lots of people who are left thinking, God, I I don't know if this is right for me. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people feel something isn't right, but because they kind of don't know any different, they end up thinking that that means there's something wrong with them as opposed to that the relationship structure or the situation isn't right for them. Um, And, you know, again, I'm not saying that everybody should be polyamorous. I'm not one of those people who's like, monogamy isn't natural, you idiots. (laughs) Like, I think, you know, we're a little bit beyond that now. We can make choices Mm. about what works for us. We're not animals anymore. Yeah, I think if somebody feels very, very drawn to monogamy, then that's definitely a legitimate choice. but I suppose it's worth interrogating what kind of monogamy because monogamy also means different things to different people. Mm. And one of my favourite quotes about monogamy is from Esther Perel and she says, um, monogamy used to be one person for a lifetime and now it means one person at a time. Yes, and oh my God, so I, true. I, 
I really think that it's it kind of does highlight like the changes that we've been through and where we're at relationship wise and you know that for example divorce doesn't have the stigma that it used to do and we understand that we might be in a 10-year relationship and then that might break down or we might end that relationship and that doesn't mean it wasn't successful yeah. it doesn't mean that it wasn't great for that 10 years and we can go on to be in another 10-year relationship or I think we our understanding of relationships and the fact that they can change or might not last a lifetime anymore has really come a long way yeah and also that you know you can be in a monogamous relationship that doesn't look exactly like the sort of cookie cutter um nuclear Mm. family like we've moved on from that as well you know I know people I have friends who are monogamous and they got married and then um but with the full knowledge that uh, the husband in the relationship was about to move to Singapore for work so and she was staying in the UK So they were going to get married and then spend three months at a time apart for the next year or two. And that, but that was a conscious, and a lot of people couldn't, you know, couldn't conceive of doing that, but, but they weren't planning to um, see anyone else in that time. That was just how they were doing monogamy. And equally, I always think of, um, Oh, I feel like they're a bad example now because they did actually split up. But that doesn't mean the relationship wasn't successful, as you just said. Um, Helena Bonham Carter and Tim Burton famously did not live together. Um, Mm. They lived in separate houses or adjoining houses. And I think that could work for a lot of people. A lot of people find that the hardest part of monogamy is cohabitation because you're just in each other's pockets all the time. Mm. So the... You know, even within monogamy, there are so many different ways you could do it. Actually, I was thinking about this recently um, in the context of lockdown, because do you remember at the start of lockdown, um, the chief medical officer said that couples who didn't live together should either move in together or stay apart and that this would test the strength of their relationship. Um, And and, and Matt Hancock then said, um, you know, make your choice and stick with it. And... Obviously, as a polyamorous person, I found that so frustrating because you're basically saying that unless you can live with your partner, your relationship isn't working. Mm. And that's that's really damaging. You know, like I was just having this conversation at the weekend with um, my boyfriend, who I obviously don't live with because I live with my husband. And I was saying, I think I think us living together would have been a disaster. Um, I don't mm. think we should live together at all. I'm very, very happy with our setup that he lives at his place and I live with my husband and we see each other occasionally. And that doesn't mean our relationship is illegitimate. It doesn't mean our relationship doesn't function. It functions very nicely. Um, so that got me thinking about that. And, I, you know, I, I talked to a lot of polyamorous friends over the course of lockdown, as you might imagine, you know, just seeing how everybody's doing and how they're coping because yeah. there's a lot of separation. And yeah, there's definitely this real feeling that if that because you don't live with your partner, your relationship somehow isn't as important um, or mm. it's not strong enough or, you know, there are all these weird sort of uh, are quite arbitrary. It's an assumption that you can't live together, whereas actually a lot of the time it might be a choice. Yeah. and But also, even if you can't live together, like it wouldn't be good for your relationship. Does that mean it's not a good relationship? I also wouldn't really want to live with my sister, but I feel like we have a good relationship. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think there is a new model for some that some people are practicing now, which is the um, together living apart, which yeah. was all, you know, lots of kind of discussions um, about kind of pre-COVID-19. But I think that really what the conversation should be around is 
working out how to make your relationship work for those in it is is oh, yeah, the best exactly. way to be in a relationship or to embody a relationship or have a relationship. Yeah. I mean the only, the only people that it has to work for are the people in it. Um mm. and I think that that but I think that is really hard to break away from because we do all fear the judgment of our peers and of our families as well and you know even I I'm from pretty liberal non-religious background my parents are pretty uh, progressive in their views but even they are iffy about um the fact that we're non-monogamous it's a little bit um what's the expression um basically don't talk about it and we won't think about it kind of thing mm. um so in theory my mum does know that i'm in a polyamorous relationship but we just don't talk about it Mm. Um, because I think being confronted with it is is difficult for her. So, you know, and that's me. And there are people who come from far stricter, far more conservative, um, you know, dogmatic religious backgrounds who have a much harder time kind of unpicking themselves from from that. So I, mm. I'm really aware that it's all very well to say the only people it has to work for are the people in it, but it is really hard for us to separate ourselves from our families and our cultures and our social upbringing isn't it Mm, of course and I think you know everything happens in the context of our social setting our cultural settings our societal settings and you know one of the words that I hear so often in my therapy room and I ban is should (laughs) people say to me all the time they're like oh I should and I'm like why should you where did that should come from and we really unpick that and quite often people can't say where should came from it's not that anyone ever directly said it but it is an assumed should or a normalized or an expectation based on life and experiences and I think that that's a kind of good example here of how people can think more critically about what what might work for them yeah definitely funnily enough I was uh, in one of the whatsapp group chats that I'm in um with some colleagues um somebody was talking the other day about um relationship type stuff and she's like I always find that in these situations if you dig down you keep saying to somebody but why do you have to do that in your relationship or in your sex life why do you think you have to do that why 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 ultimately if you keep digging you end up with the answer I don't know because society she's like that's Mm. always the the answer when you get to the bottom of it and um yeah yeah I suppose it's I suppose if you can recognize that and kind of be like okay so this isn't actually about what I want or need it's about what I think is expected of me Mm. then that's probably quite a good starting point yeah and I think that's just really true I I can absolutely see how that kind of always is the kind of bottom line if you kind of pull it apart I guess something I want to ask you about is poly obviously is the Greek word meaning several or many Mm. but there aren't necessarily rules about how many partners someone can have in a polyamorous relationship although I know there are thruples which is another a kind of different thing a different relationship set up altogether but I guess I would love to know how that's managed or how many partners there are available, there are no rules, I suppose. There aren't any rules, no. I mean, some of them, that you they do tend to be kind of patterns and models that you hear about more commonly than others. Um, mm. So I think probably what, what most couples sort of start out with is this more the idea of like an open relationship where you are each other's kind of number one, but you might mm-hmm. have a few casual 
dalliances on the side you know it's that's sort of like you're into kind of permitted affairs i suppose in an open relationship Mm. Um, and that's like when people talk about having a primary partner for example yeah yeah definitely and i oh i mean i have lots to say about kind of hierarchy in polyamory but that's Mm. like a whole other subject um and so that's often what a lot of couples start out with and that's certainly what rob and i started out with and we also kind of um dabbled in having sex with people together so um you know threesomes and kind of sex parties and stuff like that um and that was just to sort of test the water and see how we felt about it felt about it um so then you do you do get a lot of couples who are each other's primary partners, you say in inverted commas, that often live together. That's sometimes called a nesting partner as well, but I, I'm afraid I don't like, I find that really twee. I don't like it at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, labels are about what feels right for you, aren't they? That one doesn't feel right mm. for me. Um, I think it's also just about exploring terminology so that yeah. people listening to this are like, oh, okay, I heard that phrase used, but I didn't know where it fitted in, and so this is what it might refer yeah. to. Yeah, so nesting partners are often used about the person you live with, but you maybe don't want to call them your primary partner because that makes them sound like they're more important than everyone else in your life, and mm. you're trying to practice a more egalitarian approach, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, in a way, that's kind of what Rob and I have. Um. He has uh, a girlfriend, you know, a partner of kind of over a year and a half. Um, and I have a boyfriend who I've been seeing for quite a while now. And then there technically is room for us to have more partners than that. Although obviously current situation means that hasn't really been happening. Like we're not really mm. dating. Um, and to be honest, you know, from my point of view, it's been a bit of a exercise figuring out how many people I've actually got time for in my life because I also have friends and I have my family and they're like you know we mentioned earlier there are lots of different types of love and Mm. I am giving a lot of love and energy to my friendships and my sisters and my family and my child so realistically I don't think I'd ever become one of those people who had sort of like four or five partners on the go at once um but people I suppose do. you want to uh, you want to invest in the relationships you've got rather than spreading yourself kind of too thin like we can do with anything in life. I do, yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I do know people who are kind of have more relationships and they're all slightly more casual. I'm somebody who mm. likes to put a lot of love and energy into the things that I engage with, so I don't think having lots of casual relationships is really what. I want at this point in my life um Mm. then so then you also get people who obviously live alone um some of them call themselves like solo poly um where Mm -hmm. they're quite happy living alone and looking kind of to the outside world as maybe single um but they might have uh one or two or multiple significant relationships um a good friend of mine uh currently kind of has two quite significant relationships going on um and then is open to casual sex as well um but she lives alone and she's independent and you know her like her career comes first um i sometimes think oh that sounds that's that would have been nice you know that that course <laughs> of life you could just travel whenever you want and eat whatever you want and just have these nice people come into your life when you want them and then but you don't have to like you know do their laundry and stuff mm. um so yeah and then obviously you mentioned thruples 
um, like when two people who are already a couple have a third person kind of join them where they're both in a relationship. I've heard that called a triad as well. Mm. Um, so that's like if, if Rob and I were both dating the same person, um, yeah. we would maybe see that person separately um, or we might see them together. Um, you also get Vs, which is essentially where one person has two partners, but those partners possibly don't have other partners. Um, mm. And I mean, it's it's one of those kind of like, you know, how big is your imagination? You, like you yeah. say, there are no rules. I'm just running through some of the kind of common configurations mm. that you hear about and see. Um, I tend to think of it more in terms of uh, the polycule, which again, I've, is a slightly wanky expression, but um, <laughs> it's more, it's like the network of people that I'm connected to through polyamory. So obviously I have mm. Rob and he has his girlfriend at the minute, I don't think she has any other partners, so the network kind of stops with her. But then I've got my boyfriend, and he also has another partner. So then does that partner have other partners? Do you know what I mean? So mm. it can kind of it can go as, as wide or as, as narrow as you want it to be. I mm. also know people who kind of live in sort of like almost like commune-type situations where... Um, Everybody kind of within a polycule is sometimes involved with each other or not or whatever. Um, oh, I just thought of one more term, which I'm going to throw in, because like you say, I think it is quite useful when people go, oh, I've heard of that, but I wasn't sure what it meant. Um, people talk about kitchen table poly, which is where um, maybe there's a household uh, that has uh, a relationship in it. And then everybody those people are involved with is sort of welcome in the house and everybody's friends with each other Mm. um so that would be like you know if rob and i invited all of our partners over for dinner and we all had a lovely time together and i think for a lot of people that's kind of the idyll of polyamory um is that kind of communal um love fest but it Mm. really 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 doesn't work for everybody um because partly because you know, jealousy is real and it is something that polyamorous people kind of deal with. Um, And partly because you often just might not get on with everybody. I mean, what are the chances of liking everybody your partner dates? Mm. Quite slim, probably. And I I think that it's, what we're just talking about is relationships. You know, we're not going to get on with everyone we meet in every aspect of life. Right, We choose to stay friends with the friends we're friends with. We choose to stay in the relationships we stay with. We spend more time with the colleagues that we get on with than those we don't. And I suppose we're not not talking about anything different to the structures that we put in place in the rest of our lives, apart from that sex might be involved. Yeah, exactly. You're so right. And it's like, if I had friends around for dinner, I would would invite three of my good friends. If each of those good friends brought another random friend who wasn't friends with me, immediately there's more risk that I'm not going to get on with them because I'm like, well, I, mm. I don't know this person. Um, but, you know, and, and same, like, if you go to a party, you, you're not going to get on with everyone you get chatting to at that party, even though they're friends with your friends. Yeah. But, yeah, and I think, you know, I always think talking about friendships is a really good way of talking about polyamory because nobody thinks it's weird that you have multiple close friends or that mm. you have some friends that you enjoy going to art galleries with and kind of cultural events but then other friends who you're more likely to kind of go down the pub with and just have a really good chat with um 
you know, just the other day I was talking about how I really wanted to go and find somewhere where I could go swimming in South London because the pools aren't open yet. And um, as I was chatting, I kind of went, oh my God, we should go in. And then I went, oh wait, you you can't really swim, can you? And they were like, oh no, I'm not very good at swimming. I don't really enjoy it. So I was like, oh no, that's okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, find, a, I'll find a swim buddy. And I've got another swim friend. You and me can go <laughs> do something else. And I think with friendships, people find that kind of thing really natural normal and you know of course you mm. wouldn't demand your friend do absolutely everything with you you just be like oh that's cool you're not into that don't worry I'm, I'm gonna speak to so-and-so they're really into swimming so they'll come with me but with romantic relationships we kind of we, we, we almost can't get our heads around that like you you want your partner to to do everything with you and be interested in everything and really uh, all that's happening oftentimes when you're it, got different romantic relationships is that it's just you know different people for different vibes different mm. different conversations different interests and I suppose it's that I guess one thing that we haven't kind of talked about which um, is probably a little bit Esther Perel uh, I know that's come up a couple of times today is that what lots of relationships experts argue is that novelty is something that encourages desire and so for people in polyamorous relationships or multi-partner relationships that there is more variety, I suppose. But, you know, you still do get to know those people. It's not just sex. It's also about intimacy. It's also about connection, as you said, about conversation or having people to do different things with exploring interests. They are relationships. They're not just always sexual partners. Yeah. Um. For me, that's certainly true. I think some people... Um do just want sexual partnerships and kind of that sexual excitement, that sexual variety. And that's fine. I think as long as everybody's being honest about what they're looking for and what they need out of a relationship, like that's fine. For me, I, I mean, I think it depends on the person. Like I definitely have had partners where it's been just more about sex, but I, for me, I at least need to be friends with the people I'm fucking. That's kind of, that's my kind of rule of thumb is like, we at least need to be friends. Um, I don't really want to have a sexual partner who I don't get on with at all or like I can't have a conversation mm. with them. Um, but yeah, I think I am somebody who likes to have kind of real connections with people. So more often than not, that's probably what I'm looking for, yeah. Mm. But the novelty thing is interesting because I think that, and I'm never, I'm never not up for talking about Esther else. So, um, in fact, I'm not sure that it would be a, a guest uh, podcast for me if I hadn't mentioned her. Um, yeah, I think the novelty thing is interesting because I'm really, really reluctant to talk about my relationships with other people as somehow a thing that's making my relationship with Rob more exciting. Like, I don't want to make mm. out like they only exist to boost my marriage, you know? Yeah. Um, the fact that having relationships with other people is exciting and kind of gives me, like, replenishes my energy and inspires me and challenges me is is obviously good for me as a person. And, you know, it's going to work out that if I'm happier and if I'm feeling uh, replenished and inspired and kind of energized that is gonna have a positive impact on my relationship with Rob on my marriage but I don't I I do sometimes think that when polyamory gets talked about and written about in the mainstream it often gets talked about as like oh it's done wonderful things for our marriage and after I went out and had sex with this other person I came home and me and my husband had the best sex we'd had in years kind of thing and Mm. that can be true I think I think that a lot of people do experience that kind of new free son of excitement in a long-term relationship 
but that isn't why I'm doing it. That isn't what Mm. these people mean to me. That, like, you know, the people that are in my life are individuals in their own right. And, you know, the relationships I have with them exist in their own right. Um, They're not just there to bolster my marriage. Mm. And I think that's just such an important thing. I'm kind of like furiously nodding along with you. <laughs> like, yep, even though no one can see me. Um, because I think that the the biggest takeaways, I think, from this episode of the sexual wellness sessions I hope for people is that idea of myth busting, is that idea of kind of more understanding or exploration, curiosity. And I suppose, you know, everything we started this conversation with. So Thank you so much for sharing all of that and for sharing your experiences with us as well. Yeah, thank you for having me and letting me chat about it. Um, Yeah, it's been a good conversation. I always ask everyone at the end of the episode what their one tip for sexual wellness and well-being would be, and I wonder what yours would be. I think, well, I mean, we've talked about curiosity a lot in this conversation, and I, I think that would be it, like, stay curious about mm. about yourself about the people you're in relationships with and having sex with about sex itself just keep asking questions really and that doesn't have to be a kind of deep thing of you know like kind of really meditating on what we want it could just be a case of like is this what i want like does this turn me on or mm. um am i interested in that and interest obviously doesn't have to mean i want to go and do it but just am I interested in hearing more about that or reading more about that? Yeah, I think curiosity is probably my number one. I love that. That's perfect. Yay! Um, and Frankie, <laughs> and please tell everyone where they can find out a bit more about you. Okay, yeah. So my name's Frankie Cookney. Um, I'm a freelance journalist specialising in sex and relationships. All of my work pretty much is on my website at frankiecookney.com. And I also have a newsletter, which is about sex and relationships. Um, it's called The Overthinker's Guide to Sex. Um, which is very apt because I spend a lot of time thinking (laughs) about sex. Um, And you can find that uh, on my website or it's on Substack is where you can subscribe to that. And I'm also on Twitter at Frankie Cookney. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.